So inspiration can strike in a lot of different places um, and in a lot of different ways. I don't know if you know this or not, but um, I actually don't do much of my sermon writing in the office. Um, and that's for a number of reasons. Um, one, because uh, I'll just, I'll be honest, I need noise. And, uh, and our office is, is pretty quiet. Um, Monique is a very considerate secretary that way. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I need kind of like a, a, a hum of activity. I don't need like loud, you know, like, but I need like some kind of hum of activity. And so I actually spend most of my time writing sermons in coffee shops um, around the area. Like that's so Tuesday is usually um, reading and sermon writing day. And, and you'll usually find me out there. You know, another reason, to be honest, is because the distractions that come my way when I'm out writing at a coffee shop are usually better than the ones that happen when I'm in the office. Because when I'm in the office, it's that administrative thing that I know I need to take care of but don't want to, or that email that I really should answer, or the, or the whatever. But when I'm out at a coffee shop, my distractions are you. You come through the door, and it is a welcome 5, 10, 15-minute break from whatever I'm doing while I'm like, hey, how are you? How is your life? What's going on? What's God doing with you? And I love that. I'll take that study break any day. Okay. Um, and so maybe this is kind of, I guess this could kind of be like an open invitation. If, you know, if you happen to be out and about on a Tuesday and you find that you're near Hillside Coffee or Taste Coffee or uh, Discovery over in James Bay, um, I go over there sometimes, that's a good place, um, or Good Earth up near Uptown. If you're near any one of those and uh, you got some time on your hands, why don't you just pop in and look around? You may actually find me there. And uh, if so, um, come give me that study break. Let me know how your life's going. Love to spend some time talking with you and praying with you. Um, so consider that an open invite. Um, but so I was I was doing this on Tuesday, and I'm I'm looking for what, how how do I explain at least to open us up to what Jesus is trying to do in this part of the story. And while I was while I was working on this and trying to figure out an idea, I became captivated by a tattoo which may seem like it's a distraction, but it wasn't, okay? And, and the, gal that, the gal that had the tattoo, I mean, she kind of looked like your typical Victorian, young, professional, you know. I mean, it actually kind of stood out because she didn't have a whole lot of tattoos. But as she's sitting there talking, I keep watching her forum because I'm trying to make out, like, what it's saying because it's in this kind of, like, Latin script kind of thing. And I'm like, what is that? And then I realize what it says is... Viva cada via, which is Latin or Spanish or, you know, probably coming from Latin. And it, and it just means live each day. And it's on a very prominent place on her forum. It's, it's like right here, okay? So right on her right hand, very, very, very visible. And I, and I found myself asking the question, okay, so what... Because, I don't know, I guess for me, I would think that, that if you're going to put something on your arm, you know, and you're going to repeatedly stab yourself with indelible ink and put something in there, okay, I mean, that's what it does, okay, um, you're going to want to put some forethought into it, okay? So if somebody's running around with a Tyrannosaurus Rex on their leg, I'm like, you must really, really like dinosaurs, or at least that's what I hope happened. Um but I figure, a lot of, I figure a lot of thought goes into that. And so I, I found myself saying, I wonder what it is about that statement, live each day, that was important enough to her 
to make her say, you know what, I need to, I need to see this every morning in the mirror. Or every time when I just happen to be like looking down at my arm, I need to be reminded of that. And, and more importantly than that, I want other people to see it too. And I want other people to, to you know, be like, even if they don't know that, I need to go Google that and see what that means. Or, or, or if they do know it, to say, hmm, I need to entertain that as well. And the more that I thought about it, the more that I realized is that is a really, really good question that we must entertain as humans. What does it really mean to live each day? You kind of like, it's a no-brainer. I mean, you get up in the morning, you go through your morning, you have lived the day. Have you really lived the day? What does it mean to live, to have an overarching meaning, an overarching purpose, something that, that, that gives you passion, something that gives you drive, something that gives you life? What does it really mean to live each day rather than just simply engaging in the act of breathing? And the act of moving and the act of going through your motions. There's a difference between living and living. Right? And the more I thought about it in our world, there are so many answers to this question. What does it mean to live? There are so many different competing philosophies. There are so many different um, competing ideas and, and, and religions and everything about what... And, and they're all asking this same question. What does it mean to really live? And in that sense, where we are is not too terribly far from where Jesus is when we read this passage of Scripture that was in our reading today in Luke chapter 9. Now, this is you need to realize this is a big turning point in Jesus' ministry, okay? It is, it is a huge turning point, both in direction, geographically, and in the tone of the story, Okay? If, if you, you know, if we were looking at this as a novel, this would be the point where all of a sudden the rest of the plot was revealed. You were, you were, you had been in the, the story and kind of going, this is really good reading, but I don't necessarily know where it's going. And then all of a sudden the author does something and you go, wow, okay, plot twist. I did not expect it to go this way. But now I'm captivated because I want to know what's going to happen. And that's very, very much what this is. Up until this point, Jesus has been spending his time as a teacher, as a healer, as a prophet, as a rabbi, as even kind of a, a socio-political figure in a lot of ways because, because the politics of Judea are very, very much wrapped up in the religion of Judaism. And so he's got his fingers kind of in all of these things. And as he's moving through Capernaum and as he's moving through Galilee and he's moving through the northern part of Judea, He's kind of starting to create a buzz in his wake. You remember a couple of weeks ago we were saying as soon as he got in and started teaching out of Isaiah in the synagogue at the beginning of Mark, people started asking the question, who is this guy? And we, of course, were able to kind of pull out and have a bird's eye view of the whole thing. And we say, look, he's the son of God, and that has some serious implications. But for everybody that's going through this, they don't know that. And Jesus really hasn't said anything about it up until this point. He's just kind of let the talk go. And now it's even getting to the point where Herod, the king, the son of the king, who actually, because of this question, who is this baby being born in Bethlehem, actually, it was a big enough question for him to answer it with, I need to wipe out all the baby boys in that area. 
you know, this is not a benign question for Herod the king because he finds out that there's a guy who's teaching about the kingdom of God and is feeding the masses of people miraculously with food. So he's he's got his cam- he's got his campaign promise and he's got his his platform. Okay, and and he's going all right. Um, I guess I should probably be concerned. Who is this guy out in Galilee anyway? So historically and politically and socially, the heat is kind of getting turned up a little bit. And everybody's saying, well, I don't, I don't know who this guy is. He might just be another good teacher. He might be a deceiver of people. He might be a prophet. He might just be Messiah. The Messiah carries all kinds of implications for them. Messiah is the word that they have used to describe David and Solomon and Hezekiah and people that were anointed by the Lord to be king over Israel. Messiah means anointed one. So when they say that, it is a very, very charged statement. The idea that the Spirit would be driving whoever is Messiah to establish God's kingdom on earth. And so when Jesus starts talking about the kingdom of heaven and people start throwing around the words Messiah, it's not a real big stretch to see them connecting the dots here and saying, could this be the one who is going to restore Israel to its former glory? The good old days, the way things were under David and Solomon, where we had wealth and we had power and we had influence and we were a light to the nations. They kind of forgot that whole part where they were starting to look more like Egypt than Israel. They were starting to look more like the Roman Empire that they despise right now than the people of God that they were called to be. They kind of forgot that part. But you can see where it's all going, and until now, Jesus hasn't said anything, but now, now he brings the question up. Who do you say that I am? And I think it's really important where he asks this question. He asks this question on the hills of Caesarea Philippi. And and you may not know anything about this town, okay? But this town is part of what's known as the Decapolis. It's ten towns that are sitting up in the northern part of Judea. And they were established originally by the Greek Empire, and they have been taken over by the Romans. And what they are is they are, in essence, peacekeeping towns by way of promoting the culture of Greece and Rome. They are touchstones to the greater empire because, frankly, Judea is a weird animal as, as it goes politically, okay? They have monotheism. Nobody else has got monotheism. Nobody else is worshiping one god. Everybody's worshiping a whole lot of different gods. Their philosophy is completely different. Their way of going about life is completely different. And, frankly, in order for them to be able to even be a part of the empire and have this uneasy peace, you need these towns that are trading centers, that are, that are frankly, cultural centers— that are centers of economic and thought. And so what you need to understand about Caesarea Philippi, oh, and the other piece of it is, is that originally it was just called Caesarea, and the reason it's named Philippi is because one of Herod's sons is named Philip. And after Herod, the one that tried to kill all the babies in, in Bethlehem, after he dies, it gets split out under his sons, the rule does. And so actually this is also a government center of about a quarter of the empire of Judea right now, okay? So you've got all this government influence, you've got all this cultural influence, you've got all this religious influence, you've got all this economic influence, and I mean, Caesarea Philippi is the land of a thousand beliefs. 
And so it's not just kind of a hodgepodge politically or culturally. It's also a hodgepodge spiritually. And it's a place where anybody could believe anything and anybody could be anything. And so I think it's really important that Jesus asked this question right in the middle of the hodgepodge where anybody could believe anything. Because Jesus is now going to clarify who he is and what he's about. The other thing that I think is interesting about Caesarea Philippi is it's in the area known as the Golan Heights. I think you've probably heard that in the news now. It's right up near Lebanon. But this is a picture from the Golan Heights. I don't know if it's exactly where Caesarea Philippi is, but it's in the general. You can see the hills, right? And that right there is the Sea of Galilee. And so you think about Jesus kind of being right up here with the apostles, with the disciples, and they're looking out over Galilee, and they're looking out over all the places that Jesus has taught and all the things that he's done, and maybe even just kind of reminiscing over all of this as they're, as they're ruminating on this question that he says, who do you say that I am? And way out in the distance, I don't know, can you just barely, barely see it on the horizon out there? You see that mountain out there? Do you know where that is? That's Jerusalem. Yeah. Thank you. Visual aids are helpful. Okay. Way, way, way out there on the horizon is the goal. And so in the middle of all the, in the, middle of all the hodgepodge of believe whatever you want to believe about me, off in the distance there is this goal. And Jesus says, I need you to understand something. Here's who I am and here's where I'm going. And admittedly, as soon as he starts breaking out the word son of man, which is kind of in, from the book of Daniel and kind of his code word for because I am a superhero, okay, because I am immortal, greater than human, and now I'm going to go suffer and I'm going to be handed over to the religious authorities who are going to betray me and they are going to hand me over to the rulers of the day, which are the Romans, and they are going to kill me. And I'll rise on the third day. That does not fit at all with what Messiah is supposed to be for the people of that time. Disciples included, Peter included. They have forgotten that section of Scripture in Isaiah that talks about the Messiah being the suffering servant, the one who is broken for his people, the one who takes on the sin of his people, the one who brings redemption through his own sacrifice. They've completely forgotten about that part. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. This is what I am called to do as the Son of Man, as the God-Man. This is my path. And there's immediate friction. And Peter pulls him aside, and I don't know what Peter says, but it's probably something like this. Are you crazy? Are you nuts? Who do you think you... Wait, no, we know who you think you are, but, but don't you understand that this is not the path of Messiah? And Jesus says some of the strongest language that he ever says in the Bible. Get behind me. Satan. You don't have God's mind right now. You are swallowed up with human concerns. So get get behind me. 
And I feel for Peter in this, okay? Because I don't, because one, I don't think he's calling Peter Satan, okay? Let's, let's just get that out there right now, okay? I, I think what he is doing is he is identifying the real issue here. And that is simply this. There is a consistent temptation by the accuser. Ever since, ever from, from the very, very beginning in the garden, the accuser has always said, hey, you know what? You can write a better story than God can. You know you. You know what you want. You know what makes a good life. You know what makes life worth living each day, don't you? You can write a better story than God. And he's whispering in the ear of Jesus, come on, you are the son of God. Seriously, you can write a story that involves the redemption of mankind that does not involve the cross. And there is no plan B for Jesus. Where you and I would spend our time trying to find other options, Jesus, it says, sets his face firmly toward Jerusalem from that point on. He will not be shaken. He will not be deterred. And the first thing is, is, is letting his most trusted friends know, if you're trying to talk me out of this, you do not have God's voice. And I think that's really important for us when we spend our time trying to talk ourselves out of being disciples, out of following in the footsteps of Jesus. When we, when we try to talk ourselves out of, there are other options for how I could live my life and still call myself a disciple. And no, 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 no. When we speak in that way, we aren't speaking with God's voice. We're speaking with a voice of the lower story of human concerns. And we don't have the mind of God. And I think where that is really connected is this, this phrase, get behind me. Because Jesus immediately turns around. And in, in, in chapter 9 of Luke, okay, over there in verse um, 23. And then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me. That phrase, come after me, is the exact same wording in Greek as get behind me. So it's not just it's not just a, Peter, put away this foolish thinking, there is no plan B for me. He is also saying, Peter, you need to know your place as a disciple. And he's not being a jerk about it. He's just saying it plain and simply. He's like, look. If you want to be my disciple, my road is your road. Stop making, you know, uh, stop trying to fit me into your road and you start fitting yourself into my road. You need to know our place as disciples. My destination is your destination, Peter. And I think the interesting thing is, though, is the audience thing. If you look in 23, I think this is, I think this is very interesting. And then he said to them all, if anyone would deny himself, if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever would lose their life for me would save it. Here's what's interesting. Has he said anything about how he's going to die yet? No, he's just said he's going to be killed in the most general terms. Honestly, 
for the, for the disciples, if he's going to be betrayed and handed over to the religious leaders of the day and be killed, what's the death going to look like? They're going to throw rocks at him until he's dead. It's going to stoning. Okay, that's, that's the way that you get killed if you, are, if you are breaking the religious law. It's an interesting thing because it's almost like it's almost like giving them something that they don't know anything about yet. And you go, why, why would he say this now? I will tell you why he would say this now. Because all is greater than the disciples, I believe. I believe that this is something that's footnoted in here to the reader. We know the rest of the story. We know that there's a cross in the future. The disciples don't know this yet, but we do. And it's almost like it's almost like the narrator has Jesus kind of break into out of, you know, it's almost kind of like breaking the fourth wall in acting where you're you're acting and you're in it and then all of a sudden you're out talking to the audience and you're like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 what are you doing?" Jesus all of a sudden turns to the reader and turns to the audience and he says, and you need to realize that as disciples, your path is also my path. Today, if you're really, really going to walk in my steps, if you're really going to call yourself my disciple and not just a member of the crowd that's hanging out looking for food and not just somebody that's questioning going, I don't know who this guy is anyway, but I really like what his teaching is and I really like his miracles and he's a cool guy. Okay, if you're really, really going to say, I am the Son of God, I am the anointed of God, your destination is my destination. One, you can't tell me who I am, because I am who I am, says Jesus. But, in, but then more so, your life must be conformed to my steps. And there is a radical but purposeful self-abandonment there. Jesus gives us something that's very, very tough for us to, to get our minds around, but it's so important for us to get our minds around. If you are going to come after me, you must deny yourself like I denied my own wishings that there would be another way to do this. You have to submit the way that I submitted to the Father. You need to take up your cross. You need to move through the difficulty of what it means to be a disciple and walk in my steps daily. Why? Because if you are looking to find purpose in your life, if your life, this, I cannot stress how amazing a thought this is. If we are constantly consumed with trying to fill our lives with purpose, Jesus says we will get to the end of our lives and find out that we have missed the goal. However, if we are willing to abandon ourselves to the idea that God is the writer of our story and that he is the one that gives our life purpose and we are willing to live out of that purpose, ah, now I have actually found the answer to that tattooed question of what does it mean to live each day. Not just eternity, but right now. Not just, not just you'll lose your life someday down the road, man. You're losing your life right now. Every day. Every day that I am consumed with trying to find my own purpose for life, I am actually throwing it away, says Jesus. And every day that I'm actually willing to surrender 
my understanding of the purposeful life into God's hands and say, you can write a better story than me. I believe that because you are wiser and powerful and eternal, that you know how to write my story better. And I can live out of that story. When we're finally willing to do that, that's when we actually start figuring out what it means to be alive. I think we forget sometimes that as disciples, we have inherited the supernatural. Supernatural doesn't just mean bigger and better than normal. Supernatural also means beyond and outside the normal, the natural. When I say things, when I quote Jesus... And the things that he says, things like, if you want to save your life, you need to lose it for my sake. It does not make sense from a natural perspective. I know it doesn't. And there's no amount of logical arguing or loops that I can bring with it to make it make sense on a natural level. There will always be questions, for questions and doubt are the root of faith. Look at, look at how the faith blossoms in the disciples. It starts with, I don't think you can do this. I'm not really sure that this is the way. I do not understand what you are saying at all, Jesus. And out of that blossoms a faith that is so deep in these 12 guys that they, at two a one, they die for their faith. They either get nailed to a cross or they get run through with spears or they have other horrible things happen to them or if you're lucky like John, you get dropped on an island with no food, no water, and no body until you die. And all of that comes out of the questioning and the doubt of none of this making sense from a natural perspective because it is supernatural. If God's way is bigger, it also must be a little beyond. Because if I can figure it all out and it all just makes terrific sense, then it's not really supernatural. Is it? And we have to be willing to embrace in faith the fact that there is a mystery here to this idea of losing your life in order to save it. That's what Jesus is asking us to do. But he provides some immediate reassurance because right after this, Jesus takes them up on a hill and they witness Jesus being actually visibly glorified by God. This, 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 this story of the transfiguration happens right on the heels and it happens for the benefit of the disciples and for the reader. It's not for Jesus' benefit. Jesus already knows who he is and he knows the power that he holds. All this is for is to confirm for the disciples You can trust my son, says the father. He is speaking with my voice, and I love him, and I have given him the power to go in this direction, and he's right on, so listen to him. And that's not just for the three disciples. It's not just for Peter, James, and John. It's for you and me, too. But here's the thing. That little phrase, if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me flows so easily off of our lips. It's so Christianese, okay? It's become so much that that I'm afraid if we don't define it, it's allowed to just kind of stay in the realm of general nice principle. Yes, we should deny ourselves whatever that looks like, and we should take up our cross, but nobody's being nailed to a cross today, and, and we should follow Jesus. 
in whatever metaphysical way that looks like. And so what I love about Jesus is that he comes back to it and defines it in very, very concrete terms. Look at the end of Luke 9. If you look at verses 57 through 62, Jesus doesn't leave this content to just be this big philosophical question or this, honestly, I mean, I've seen people do some really dumb things in the whole, you know, take up your cross and follow me, like self-infliction things, okay? Jesus didn't intend this to be like, we're not beating ourselves for the kingdom of God. That's not what denying yourself and taking up your cross and following me means either. Okay? He defines it very, very clearly. Look at this. As they were walking along the road, verse 57 of Luke 9, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Pretty bold statement. Maybe he's looking to get some favor with the new king, you know, right? Like, hey man, I'm, I'm your guy, okay? You just tell me what to do and I'll do it, Messiah. And Jesus' response is, you, you do realize that even foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man isn't going to live in a palace. Son of Man has no place, to call, no place to lay his head, no place to call his own. I am completely dependent upon the hospitality of others as willed by my Father. You do understand that, right? I have completely given my security over to God. And then he come, and then along the way he says to another man, and, and obviously all of this is as Jesus is setting his face toward Jerusalem and as he's moving from the outside into the middle, into the thick of things. The Feast of the Tabernacles and eventually the Feast of the Passover and eventually the Triumphal Entry and eventually the Passover and the Betrayal and the Cross. Okay, so he's on that. He's not wandering around. He's going toward Jerusalem and he sees somebody and he says, follow me. And the guy says, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Okay, that could mean a whole lot of things, okay? I mean a whole lot of things, especially in Eastern culture, okay? That could mean, you know what? My dad's not dead yet, so I'm not actually the commander of my destiny yet. Um, I actually am still kind of in the family business, and as soon as that all kind of gets resolved out and everything, then in my life is mine to choose from, I will, like, totally follow you. But, but right now, I'm kind of hampered, okay? It might even be a way of saying, I'll do it when it's convenient. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. It's time for you to proclaim the kingdom of God. I think it's important that we hear Jesus' words in there. He's not just saying, you know, forget it, okay? What he's saying is, look, you know of the times where you have really felt the stirring of the Spirit to seize the initiative and actually be a disciple of Jesus. And you let it slip. Jesus knows us very well as humans, and he knows that if we don't act on the urgings and the promptings of the Spirit, it is very, very easy for us to quell and to quench. And to just kind of smother that influence in our lives to where it's, you know, that probably would have been a good idea once, but now I'm too old. I'm too entrenched in my career. I have too many kids. I have this. I have that. I have too many other responsibilities. You know, whatever it is. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Follow me now. Don't follow me when it's convenient. 
Don't follow me when the next thing works out. You know, well, I'm just waiting for this, and then I'll be able to be more committed. No, 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 no. You follow me now. The path of the disciple is now, not later. And then the last one, another said to him, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. You have to understand the metaphor here, okay? What he's saying is, you cannot plow in a straight line while looking over your shoulder. If our walk is actually going to be directed in the steps of Jesus, he actually has to be our focus. And yet so often we're like, hey, I'm going to follow Jesus with this piece of my life, but not this piece. I will serve him in this way, but not this way. And Jesus says very clearly, it's like you, you can't run in a straight line while looking over your shoulder. You can't drive in a straight line while looking over your shoulder. You can't plow in the kingdom and do anything useful if you're constantly looking back over your shoulder wondering what might have been if you had made the choice to do what you wanted to do instead of surrendering to me and going full speed ahead. If there's no plan B, if there's no plan B for me, there's no plan B for you as a disciple. Don't compromise. So we sponsor um, we sponsor mission works all over. And, and I, get, uh, I get the one from China, Joel and Jessica. They have a, a weekly newsletter that they send out. And, and something that Joel sent out today really piqued my interest. Because, again, this is in China, which is a different language, a different culture, a different way of thinking, a different history. I mean, so many things are different than what we experience here. Okay? But I want you to hear his prayer request. He said, please, please pray for the discipleship groups that, that we are working with that they will not be intimidated by the challenge of daily obedience, but rather they would see their life in practical obedience to Jesus, not as some burdensome obligation, but an invitation to the most fantastic opportunity ever. And I thought to myself, oh, is that not so us? I, I mean, I could have hit reply to him and just been like, right back at you, pray for us too, please, okay? Because... Because how, how many of us, we are intimidated by the challenge of daily obedience. Jesus looks at us and says, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And we go, oh, that is so, I, I don't even know if I can understand that, much less do it. And Jesus goes, okay, why don't we just break it down to this, today. How will you live life today? How will you respond to the tattoo today? Right? Are you going to write your story today? Or are you going to let me write your story today? Who knows how to write a story better? You or me? And I think it's I think I think what it what Jesus is asking for us is to go to our own personal Caesarea Philippi. That place where there's a thousand different beliefs. That place where there's a thousand different ways to live life. Way off in the distance is the goal. Way off in the distance is Jerusalem. And Jesus says, that's where I'm going. Because in order to get to the new Jerusalem, I've got to go through the old one. In order, to get to the, in, in order to get to the new life, I have to go through the cross. 
In order to get to the resurrection, I have to go through the death. In order to get through, in order to get to the crown, I have to go through the pain and suffering of the cross. And that's my direction. Will you trust me enough to believe me when I say that that's actually the good life? Doesn't make sense from a natural standpoint. Makes perfect sense from a supernatural standpoint. And so for us, the challenge is to answer that question in our hearts today. To let Jesus set the direction for us. Because the question of who do you say that I am is directly related to who are you then if you're my disciple? And if we're going to let Jesus answer one question, we've got to let him answer the other one. And so that is my prayer for you and my challenge to you that you would not be intimidated by the challenge of daily obedience, but rather see the life of practical obedience to Jesus, not as a burdensome obligation. He said, hey, my my yoke is easy and my burden is light compared to the burden of having to figure out your own destiny and purpose. But instead see it as the invitation to the most fantastic opportunity ever where death is not the end, where pain is not the end, where suffering is not the end, where hopelessness is not the end, but God has a life that is beyond and above all of those things. And he calls to you and says, will you get into my steps? Will you get behind me? And go with me? Pray that you will. Pray that you will. Let's stand and let's worship.